Uh, we are really glad you're here. If you're a guest today, uh, welcome to Sagemont. This is who we are. We invest in students. We love students here. We're a church family. We're a body of believers. So this is a journey weekend. It's an emphasis in our student ministry, and lives are changed during a journey weekend. But listen to me carefully. If you're here this morning, and you're kind of hanging on, trying to find hope, your life can be changed too because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't present anything other than surrendering to Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you this morning in Philippians chapter 2. We've been in this study since chapter 1, verse 1 in the 1115 service, but we're coming to the end of chapter 2. And I want to talk to you today about living in the zone. Students, I want to talk to you about living in the zone so when journey weekend is over, which is as soon as this is over, you can still live in the zone. There's something about living in the zone. At baseball, when you're watching the game, there is a yellow line in a box where people live in the zone. It's called the strike zone. And people, uh, the batter looks at the strike zone. Every, every batter is interested in that, that zone because in that zone, you minimize distractions and you maximize effectiveness. So not only do you have a batter living in the zone, you have a pitcher who lives in the zone. And then everybody else that's watching the game lives in the zone. But I want to talk to you today about how to live in the zone. And here's the zone that we live in. It's called being a servant. And that's the second spiritual marker in our lives that you've talked about in iConnect ministry. It's what does it mean to be a servant? We've had an opportunity to see in Philippians chapter 2 that the Apostle Paul is living in the zone. He has a baton, and he's passed the baton last week to a, a life-changing moment to Timothy. And Timothy ran the race because he learned to live in the zone. He learned to minimize distractions and maximize effectiveness because Christ had entered into his life. And so servanthood is not something that you pump up. It's not something that you say, I'm going to conjure this up when I go back to school. Because the real issue, students, is not all the things you did on journey weekend. It's when you go to school on Tuesday. Can you live out this message of grace of Christ in you? And the answer is yes, when you live it out in servanthood and you live it for others. So when the music's gone and you wake up in the morning and you just surrender to God and you say, God, here I am, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, that's living in the zone. So Paul lived in the zone. He passed the baton to Timothy. And this week there's a guy by the name of Epaphrodites, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. He lived in the zone. He ran the race with the baton because somebody handed it off to him. And he learned to live in the zone. Here's what the text says in verse 25. Here's what it says. We'll just go down these verses. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, what the text says here is that Epaphrodites, Paul is saying he's my brother. And so back in the day, where the Greeks and the Romans would get together, they were very divided. So back in Roman culture, the Greeks and the Romans were divided, 
Male and female were divided. Um, slave and free men, they were all divided. So there was a lot of division in the culture at Rome, just like there is in our culture here in the United States. So the idea would be, once the gospel permeated Philippi, and once it permeated Rome, then what happened is it wasn't male or female, slave or free. It was basically, hey, it's now you're my brother and you're my sister in Christ. If God is your father, if God is your father, then you're my brother and you're my sister. Back in my day, we didn't have this song, but we had a song by Russ Taff called You're My Brother, You're My Sister. Anybody remember that one? Oh yeah, okay, that's good. So let's, you're my brother, you're my sister, so take me by the hand, together we will work until he come. Am I right? Hey, that's not bad. Hey, hey, listen. I'm good with what, I'm good right here. This is my lane. This is my zone right here. I want to stay in it. But I'm trying to explain to you, my brother, when you trust Christ as your Savior, and many of you have, then what happens is you enter into a relationship where you have a spiritual family. And sometimes your spiritual family is stronger than your physical family. Some of you come from families that are broken. You come from uh, homes that mom and dad fight and fuss, and many of us grew up in homes, maybe adults in this room, where the smudge on our, our, our lens is the fact that we had a broken home and we had broken relationships, and we didn't have uh, what it is that we needed in this life to look at to say, hey, this is who Jesus is in a person. So the idea would be, once you trust Jesus as your Savior, you have a perfect Father. I want you to understand this. You have a perfect family. You have a perfect Father. So when you look at your Father, He is perfect. And Jesus said, I came to show you who the Father was. So no matter what, what's going on in your home and what your Father is really like, I can tell you this, God the Father brings us into the family, and it's a spiritual family. It's not a physical family, it's a spiritual family. So we're united, we're not divided in that, just like the culture is. So Paul says this, he says, I'm gonna run this race, but first of all, you're my brother. Secondly, he says, you're my fellow worker. The idea of being a fellow worker means to work with. It means to have synergy. The word synergy means to well, let me explain the word synergy. It means like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, they seem to have synergy with the passing and receiving. Uh, Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins have synergy. They work with one another. Uh, a parent works with a child and they have synergy. And so when there's parenting in the home and the mom and dad aren't divided, but they're united, there's connectivity and there's synergy in the home. When you go to work, there's synergy in a workplace where there is unification of heart and mind. So what Paul is saying here is that, that we're not only brothers, but we're fellow workers. Now, the idea would be that we work together. We, we work together. We work out this salvation. That's what Paul's been telling us in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we work out this salvation as we serve as a brother, but we also serve in unity together and working together. So we work this thing out. We work out what God has worked in us. It's Christ in us. So we're working well together. So the idea would be, um, if you're going to take fellow worker to an extreme, you could say, if you've ever seen oxen, when they pull a load, both of them are pulling. Where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, he's saying uh, that you can pull together. So the idea would be that 
when you have an oxen, you have one that's in the lead and the other is kind of following, but they're both kind of in a, in a noose, if you will. So they stick their heads in there and they pull, but you have to have one leader. Both can't be leaders. So when you work together, when you and I work together for the gospel and together for grace is the gospel, when we work together, there's synergy that happens because it's Jesus who's the one that's leading us. And as he is leading us, we are working with him and cooperating with him because he is the one that's producing the faith in us and he's the one that's producing the power. So he's in the lead, but we're following and we are fellow workers with God. So if you're gonna be a fellow worker with somebody else, you first gotta be a fellow worker with God. You gotta know Jesus as your savior. You gotta have a relationship before you can have a fellow worker. So that's the idea. So notice what Paul says here. He says, my brother, then he says fellow worker and fellow soldier. A soldier would be not only one who serves with, but one that works with, but one that fights with. So we fight a battle. We have, a, not only do you have a fellow worker who will stand with you and pull a load side by side, but you have a soldier when conflict comes, you have a fellow worker that'll stand with you in the conflict. Now here's the thing about the battle that we're in. It's rigged. We've already won. We've already won because what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, the victory is already ours. We don't move to victory, we move from it. It's a position of already being a brother, of already being a fellow worker. Now I'm a fellow soldier, so I have some war scars, but the battle's already been won because Jesus Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave. So the battle is not something that I go, I'm gonna pump myself up because I'm a fellow soldier and I gotta get on the battlefield. No, Christ is the one that puts you on the battlefield. He gave you armor. The armor in Ephesians chapter six, you know what it is? It's Jesus. That's what the armor is. Just put him on. Put on the whole armor of God. So this battle is rigged. We already won the victory. So the other day I was trying to figure out if the rockets won. So I Googled and I saw that they did. And so when I Googled and saw that they did, I saw some replays a, a little later on in the day because I had recorded something and I saw them kind of fumbling the ball and missing passes and really it was terrible. But I thought, you know, this doesn't disturb me near as bad because I already know what the victory is. They already won. So I can go through some battles here. We can fumble some things. You and I can make some mistakes. We can make two steps forward and one step back. But here's what we got to understand. In the end, we already win. So as a soldier, we go into conflict and we go into battle as victory warriors. We've already won the victory because of Christ in us. So when he says a fellow soldier, he's talking about someone who's going to go shoulder to shoulder with you. Uh, several of the baptisms were people that came for the first time, maybe to journey or Wednesday night. But now God has given you a spiritual family so that you can come together and you can harness your energy together. And so your fellow soldiers in the battle. Now, those of us that are soldiers in the battle, we have a testimony. And we have a testimony of what God has done for us. So when we come in here, it's to share our victory testimonies. It's to share what God has done in here and what God is doing in our lives. But when we go outside these walls and we exit for ministry, it's to do battle on the battlefield. In here, we affirm the testimonies. We affirm what God's doing, but out there we go to war. And every war person, every soldier realizes that when someone falls away from the fold, when a soldier gets injured, you're concerned about that soldier. God gives you the ability 
to have a love for other people, to serve other people, to care for other people. So he talks about here being a, look at this, my brother, that's a servant, my fellow worker, that's synergy, my fellow soldier, that's the battle cry. And then he says, but your messenger, he was a messenger to Paul, Epaphrodites was. He was a messenger to Paul. The idea of the word messenger is the word sent. And so God sends you. He's sending you back into your family. He's sending you back into your school. He's sending you, and the emphasis of sending you is with intentionality. God sends us with purpose. He sends us with passion. He sends us with intentionality to bless someone so that we're not a burden to somebody else. We're actually a blessing to someone else. So Epaphrodites was going to travel 800 miles to a place called Rome. Because he was in Philippi and Paul was in Rome in prison. So Epaphrodites is going to travel. He's going to take the the baton of servanthood and he's going to go minister to Paul and he's going to be a messenger. One of the ways that you can be a messenger is realize that God has a plan for your life. Listen carefully. It was at a journey or a camp like this for me that God turned my life around. Radically changed me and gave me a gift of salvation, and gave me a purpose in my life. And then he sent me out. Now, for some of you, you're trying to be sent and launched out into this world with purpose, but you're living with unhealthy relationships. You've got secret sin over here. You're embracing unhealthy relationships. So one of the things you have to do as a messenger of God who wants to minister to people is sometimes you've got to move around the people that are keeping you from ministering and being sent. You've got to go around this way. You've got to step over some people and you got to shake the dust off your feet so that you can be all that God wants you to be. You see, you've got a new path. You've got a new purpose. You've got a new reason for living. And the purpose is you're sent. You're sent to serve. You're sent to be a blessing to someone, not a burden to someone. So Epaphrodites says, basically in the church in Philippi, they would have been having one of these services. And at the end of the service, they would have given a response time. And they would have said, would there be anybody who would like to travel 800 miles at six weeks to go to Rome, to prison, to minister to Paul? And everybody, when the pastor would have given the invitation, would have put their head down. I I can't. Oh, Oh, my parents told me never to look up, never to make eye contact. So I won't make any eye contact. And here's Epaphrodite saying, I'll go. Do you know what a servant does? A servant says, I'll go. A servant says, God, whatever you want to do with my life, listen to me carefully. Other people had great plans for my life. They wanted me to do this in school. They wanted me to go to school and get this kind of degree. But guess what? I had to go to good people who loved me and cared for me and said, I can't do it. I must follow God. So anytime you want to please God, you will always displease somebody else. Listen, students, don't worry about not pleasing somebody. You just please God. You just honor God. You let the chips fall where they need to fall. If somebody's disappointed in you, you won't have to stand before them one day. You can stand before God one day and say, God, I displeased them, but I pleased and honored you with my life. And that's what we want. That's why we invest in Envision. That's why we do Journey. That's why we have a student ministry, so that we can send out fellow workers, fellow soldiers, fellow brothers, and fellow people who minister as messengers. Notice the text, verse 25. Here's what it says. 
He ministered to my need. That's what Epaphroditus did. He ministered to my need. So the idea was Paul had some needs. So what happened was Epaphroditus took the six weeks and he came over and he ministered to Paul. And he didn't just drop off a care package. He ministered to Paul. He ministered to his needs. And as he ministered to his needs, there were things that began to come up. So one of the things that you do when you minister to somebody else is you get your eyes off of yourself and you get your eyes on others. I have a friend who I went hiking with when I lived in Tennessee a lot. He was in the Smoky Mountains. He lived real close and we would go hiking. He could get his backpack. He could get his gear and he could go hiking in 10 minutes. He was on the mountain all by himself until he decided to start a guiding service. He started to be a guide. So then his focus totally shifted from being on him. He knew what to take. He knew how much water to bring, how much food to bring. He knew all that. It was second nature to him. But all of a sudden, when he's trying to get other people to come with him, his eyes shifted off of himself and onto their needs. And he told them, you can't take that in your backpack. You can't take that. Drop that. You can't take that. That's too heavy. Drop the Diet Coke. Drop the Snickers. Because bears will eat you in the tent when you have that on your shoulder. So drop it. So he, all of a sudden, it wasn't his needs. It was their needs. And so the idea was that he began to minister to other people. And one of the things that happens to us when we serve, listen carefully. When we serve, we get the endurance for Christ not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on other people. And to allow Jesus to serve through us. And then he begins to do through us what we can never do in ourselves. And when you begin to serve other people and bless other people, you begin to get an energy from God that's a supernatural energy. And you go, who else can I serve? Who else can I help? How can I help you? How can I serve you? And then at the end of the day, guess what? You're spiritually tired, but you're not burned out because God's supplying the energy. So students, find someone who you can serve. Look at the text. Here's what the text says. So it says here in Philippians 2.26, since he was longing for you, so he goes all the way to Philippi, he ministers to Paul, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore, I sent him. Here's the idea of sending and serving. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. So the idea is that Epaphroditus received the same grace that Paul received in his life. And when Paul sent Epaphroditus out and when Epaphroditus went to Rome and went to prison to be with Paul, he released what he had received from the Lord. So God gives you grace and that grace is never for you to hold on to. It's for you to have a passing party and you pass it on to someone else. So Epaphrodites receives grace. He comes all the way to Rome, releases that grace, ministers to the apostle Paul. Listen to what happens. The text says that the people in Philippi started worrying about the sickness that Epaphrodites had. So what bothered Epaphrodites, listen carefully, was not his sickness. It was that others were grieving over the fact that they were concerned about him. That's what a servant does. A servant is not concerned with their own needs. 
You see, what Epaphroditus was grieving about was the fact over in Philippi, they were grieving for him. But a true servant does not focus on their sickness or their needs. Do you know a lot of people when they're sick, they call the church and say, come visit me? You know why? Because of them. They have needs. Nothing wrong with that. Rex and the pastoral care ministry do a great job. But listen to me, you can, even in your sickness, even in your suffering, you could want all the attention to come to you, but that's not what a real servant is. A real servant is grieved when others grieve that you're grieving what they're grieving. So the idea was Epaphroditus wanted to go back to Philippi. Paul had to receive grace here in prison in order to release Epaphroditus to go and minister back to the church in Philippi because they just needed to see his face. So Epaphroditus has the baton. He's been given the baton to run the race over here. Now he's going to take the baton, put both hands on it, and run the race back to Philippi because he's concerned with those who are grieving over him. When you have a baton, you will have two hands on the baton at one time. And when I think about the student ministry and I think about Journey Weekend and I think about the heritage of our church and I think about the next generation, which is already here, it's this generation, there's like we have one hand, those of us that are older in this room, we're running the race of servanthood. We are living in the zone. We are trusting Christ to serve through us. But there comes a time when we're going to hand the baton off to this younger generation and there's going to be two hands on the baton at the same time. And we've got to pass this baton in like 20 meters according to the race there was about 20 meters. You can even get disqualified if you hold onto the baton, but you don't pass it within the right lane. So we want to be faithful here to pass off servanthood to those of you that are younger. So when you grab the baton, we as older people let go of it and we let you run your waste. That's why we're investing in you. That's why we're investing in your future because we believe in you. We want to pass on courage. We want to pass on faith. We want to pass on some of our failures so that you know that failure's not final. So you know that people like me who made a whole lot of mistakes in their life still have another chance with God and still have grace to experience. And all we have to do is get up when we get down and we got to get up and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to keep going. I'm still going to run my race because I want to hand it off to you. That's what Paul's saying. Epaphroditus is the one. So he's running the race, but he gets sick. Notice the text. And he said, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, had he died, he would, not only would Paul experience sorrow upon sorrow, but the whole church at Philippi would experience sorrow upon sorrow. Can I tell you something? I know what that's like. It's wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of grief. It is. I'm living it. It is not a fun journey. But one of the things that I'm trying not to do, and I'm trusting Christ to do this in me, and I do grieve, I do cry, I do absolutely fall apart. But I'm trying not to draw attention to me. I'm trying to say, I want to grieve for those 
other people over here. I want to help somebody else. I want to minister to somebody else. There's a race to run, so I can't have a pity party here. I need to deal with the stuff, and I'll continue to deal with grief for the rest of my life. It is sorrow upon sorrow, but I want to tell you what. God has poured grace upon grace upon mercy upon mercy in my life where the strength that you see that you think I have, I don't, but God through me does. So he empowers me. He gives me grace. He gives me strength. I understand this, sorrow upon sorrow. And then here's what he says. Then I send him the more eagerly, sending him back. Verse 28, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. You know what Paul's saying? Not only is the church in Philippi grieving, but it's causing me grief right here from prison. So in order to get the grief stopped, what we need to do is send you, Epaphrodites, it's going to make my grief a whole lot less, and I'm going to be a whole lot less troubled if you'll go back to Philippi and let them see your face. So he's running the race as a servant back to Philippi. And how is a servant received? I'm going to close with this. How is a servant received? Here's what the text says. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in high esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You know what I see here? Epaphroditus, he wasn't just a gift deliverer. People say, oh, he delivered a gift to Paul. No, he was a gift himself. He was a gift. Do you know that you're a gift? You're not just delivering a gift out there. You're just not serving so that you can get attention and get things done. You are serving because, first of all, salvation is a gift. And the gift that you've been given, what God does is he turns around and he gifts you with salvation, and then he gives you as a gift. You're a gift to the body of Christ. And if you hold in that which God wants to release through you, you'll never be able to experience the fullness of joy that Christ has for you. And in verse 29, it says, how do you receive a servant? How do you receive someone who runs the race? How do you receive someone who's effective in ministry, who minimizes the distractions in the strike zone and maximizes effectiveness? How do you receive a servant? You hold him in high regard. You know who the real heroes of the faith in this church are? The people who serve every Sunday. The guys in the parking lot the guys that are greeting and ushering, the guys that serve, the student ministries uh, and the students that serve in your school that take up the towel of servanthood and you don the towel of servanthood, you begin to let God work through you. Those are the ones that we hold up in high regard. Those are the ones that Paul says you hold in high esteem. Now notice what the text says. It says here, and he almost lost his life. Look at the text. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in high esteem because for the work of Christ... He came close to death, not regarding his life. In other words, risking it all to supply what was lacking in your service. It's about risking everything you are and abandoning everything you are to the cause of Christ. You know what most of us will do? We will go home to nice homes. We'll leave here and we'll get into nice cars. And then we'll go somewhere to eat that's a nice place. 
and everything is nice, and I'm concerned, I'm just burdened by this. This is a fear that I have, that the church is losing its grit and losing its teeth because God did not call us to a comfortable life. God called us to to be willing to go 800 miles or go 8,000 miles to be a missionary and to be a missionary for him. If being a missionary for you is leaving your living room and going across the street, then let God send you. If God is calling you to go to Africa, then you go to Africa. It doesn't matter how far it is, it matters the heart that you bring before God. So we've got to be willing as a church to risk and embrace. A church that is not willing to risk it all for the cause of Christ will start dying. If you don't learn to risk it all in your relationship with Christ, you'll never have a great walk. There are times when you and I have to risk it all. Peter had to risk walking on the water. He had to walk by faith and he had to trust God and he couldn't turn his back on the ocean. He had to keep his eyes on Jesus and that's what servanthood is. It is risking it all. But I think there's a generation before me and I think there are leaders before me who are willing to do whatever it takes and whatever is necessary for us to embrace being a servant in the body of Christ to see Jesus do through us what we can never do in our own power. And I want him to do that here because I'm a product of a student ministry back in the 80s. Somebody took a hold of me and said, hey, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to disciple you. And now you turn around and dispatch disciples and you start discipling people and you love God's word and you start pouring your life in. And it's a cycle of blessing that just goes round and round and round and round again. I'll close with this. I thought I risked it one time when I went to Hawaii because I'd never been on a big plane and I'd never flown over water. So um, we went to a place called Kauai. They said it's not as touristy as Hawaii or Maui, so go to Kauai. So we went to Kauai, and I thought I was risking it because they said you've got to get to Kauai, and then about five miles from where we were staying, there's this beautiful waterfall in the jungle, but you have to risk a lot to get there. You have to rent a kayak, and it's a two-person kayak. So my wife and I are in the kayak together, for grace. And she, she's not rowing correctly. And I, uh, we, were, we were having marriage counseling. We were going round and round and round and round and round. And I told her to submit at least five times. <laughs> and she was in the front. And I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? Jump out. We're going to change. And so we, we, we got in this kayak. They said, first of all, before you can go see this beautiful, beautiful waterfall, you, you have to get in a kayak and you have to kayak two or three miles. So we, we did that. It took us about three and a half hours to get to the destination. We had a guide. She, she was kind of like a, a free spirit, a new ager, kind of, would you call it hippie-ish? I don't know what you would call it. She had a drum. And so every time we would, our group would get to the place, she would just start playing her drum. <laughs> and I would get out my fruit and flakes and nuts and I would start eating them and then I would begin to make the connection with the song and what she was chanting. And anyway, it all kind of went down south from there. But she was uh, our guide. So she said, get out of your kayak and follow me into the jungle. So we got out of the kayak and we followed her into the jungle. She gave us a speech. She said, listen, 
I promise you, if you do not do what I tell you to do, you're going to get hurt. She said, when you see a water puddle, and it's a mud puddle, when you see a mud puddle, you step in the middle of the mud puddle. Do not step on the sides of the mud puddle. There's mud puddles everywhere in this jungle. We're getting to our destination. The, the, the 11 people that I were with must not have understood what she said because they were stepping on the side of the, instead of stepping in the middle of the mud puddle, they were stepping on the side and several of them went over the side of a cliff. They lived, but they went, because they were stepping where, she, where you're not supposed to step and it was very slippery. Finally, she said this, I said, step in the middle of the puddle. And you know what one of the people said? I can't see what's in the puddle. And do you know what? That's our problem as Christians. God says, step, I'm being very clear, God says, step in the middle of the puddle. And many of us are stepping on the side of the puddle and we're falling over here and we're falling over here. If you step in the middle of the puddle and do what she said and do what God said, there's blessing in the middle of the puddle. That's where his will is. You step, you say, I can't see, it's muddy, but God can see very clearly. What you can't see, God can see. So when God tells me, don't go to this college, you go to that college, and it offended a lot of people, guess what? They can stay offended because I'm going to step in the middle of the puddle. When God called me into the ministry, he said, you step in the middle of the puddle. I said, no, God, I got a math degree. I got to go do something else. He said, step in the middle of the puddle. I step. Do you know what my walk of faith has been? Just stepping in the middle of the puddle, one step at a time. Let me ask you a question. What step in the middle of the puddle is God asking you to make today? Some of you are flailing around and you're faltering and you're getting knocked down because you're trying to get on the slippery slope on the outside. And God's calling some of you to just step right in the middle of the puddle today. For some of you, you need to be saved. You need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to risk it all and say, you know what? I've never put my faith in Jesus, but today I've seen life change. I want to do that. I want to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And I need to step right in the middle of the puddle that he says to me, because he's got this thing. He's already paid for my sin. He's already done everything. So when I step in there, I'm going to be in his safety arms because when I step in the middle of the puddle, it's all been taken care of. When you can have your sins forgiven because of the death, burial, and resurrection, you got to step in the puddle. The puddle is sin, but sin has been taken care of by the fact that Jesus paid it all. But some of you are saved, but you still haven't stepped in the middle of God's will. I want to tell you something. Listen to me. Look at me. Just look at me. You're looking at someone who was fearful about what other people thought until I just took the first step and did what God told me to do. Do you know when I took the first step, God just took the rest of them for me? I just cooperated with him. I've had people that are mad at me. You know what? I will not stand before anybody and them say, I'm displeased with you. I will stand before God, and all I want to hear is good and faithful servant, well done. I stepped in the middle of the puddle. What's your puddle today? What do you need to obey God with?